I put the oil in the skillet, heat up the skillet, begin to pour the overflowing contents from the blender into the skillet. Grease splashes out of the skillet onto the floor and onto me, searing my face and my hands. I push through, pour more batter into the skillet, and fire lashes out of the skillet into my face. I scream and panic as smoke fills the air. My friend rushes in and closes the door behind me. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Stories about Jewish food and delicious miracles. Today on Schmaltzy, we've got a special bonus episode just in time for Hanukkah, featuring the uber-talented Joshua Silverstein. Joshua is a third-generation Angelino, an award-winning actor, comic, director, writer, beatboxer, and educator. His performances and productions have received praise from creative geniuses ranging from Norman Lear to Prince. And you're about to see why. First, you'll hear Joshua tell his incredible story from our very first Schmaltzy Los Angeles, hosted in collaboration with our friends at New Roots. Then we'll chat in studio about his unique childhood, his special connection to blenders, and more. Here's Joshua live from the Schmaltzy stage. My grandma was old. And the house she and my grandfather shared was also old. And every now and then, my parents would take off on some amazing adventure and leave me alone with these prehistoric people. (laughs) Bob and Shirley Silverstein would argue as if they were glorified characters in a Woody Allen film, complaining daily about whatever they read in the paper, and to relax at night watching Jeopardy, while yelling out the correct answers to topics I'd never heard of. As a child growing up, I loathed going there. These were not fun people. While other Jewish grandparents took their grandchildren to Disneyland, mine took me to the Holocaust Museum. (laughs) My grandma would play all her tiles to get 50 plus points against me in Scrabble would buy me books as gifts instead of toys. And while sleeping at night in my father's preserved old bedroom, I would stare through the sheer, withered, dusty green linen curtains out the window at the moon and wish to go home. But the holidays were a different story. I'm allergic to dairy, nuts, corn, soy, gluten, and sunflower seeds. For those of you who are not privileged enough to be a part of allergy culture, we just want to fit in. We do not want to walk into your dinner party to hear you've made us a special plate. Or hear we can't eat any of this, but the salad is okay. And we are not pleased when during dessert... You pass everyone a slice of your homemade strawberry cheesecake, get to us, and hand us a bowl of cut fruit. (laughs) Thankfully, my grandma never did any of these things. In fact, it wasn't until I was much older that I learned in all the years she made meals for me and my family, she had altered the ingredients of her delicious Ashkenazi cooking so that I could enjoy it. 
Up until then, I believed her matzo ball soup was traditional. I believed the way she prepared her brisket was generational. I believed the way she made her latkes was by downloading the ingredient list straight from our ancestors. I did not know the recipe of her mouth-watering latkes was made up to accommodate me. And I loved my grandma's latkes. Before she became ill and passed away in the late 90s, for every Hanukkah and Passover and Jewish New Year dinner, she would make her latkes. And every time she made them, I would drown them in applesauce and devour them. She would make enough to feed a a family of 10, but would hide most of them out of fear that I would consume them all. And she was right. I would have. So years later in my 20s, I am invited to a Kwanzaa party potluck, and I am asked to bring a dish that best represents my family. So, of course, I'm bringing the latkes. Now, I had never made my grandma's latkes. Growing up in my home, my father was a prominent cook, and he had made his own recipe, and they were decent, but I wanted to electrify the taste buds of my Kwanzaa party friends, so I'd be bringing grandma's latkes. And because latkes are best served right out of the pan, I'd be making them at the party. <laughs> Being that my grandma had passed away, I probed my dad's memory of the ingredients and preparation of her latke delicacy. I arrive to the Kwanzaa party late with a giant bag of potatoes, onions, eggs, spices, other ingredients, two giant jars of applesauce, my father's cast iron skillet, and a blender we have had since the 1980s. Already on the table at the Kwanzaa party is this beautiful spread of dishes from the black diaspora. I'm talking collard greens, jambalaya, fried and Cajun catfish, jerk chicken, okra, grits, cucumber salad, fried green tomatoes, black-eyed peas, and more. Being black and Jewish means that my life is elated by the intersectionality of cultures, specifically food. So while this feast of delights in front of me makes my mouth water, clearly this table is missing something. The latkes. I hurry into the kitchen, plug in my ancient blender, begin chopping ingredients and putting them into the blender just like my grandma did. I hit blend and the blender begins to smoke. (laughs) I reach my ungloved hand into the blender, pull out the potatoes, chop them up into finer pieces, put them back in, hit blend again, and the blender does the best it can pathetically churning and grinding these ingredients until I look like I've made chunky onion soup. My friend, hearing the noise, rushes into the kitchen, looks at the mess I've made, laughs, and walks out. (laughs) I ignore him and keep going. I put the oil in the skillet, heat up the skillet, begin to pour the overflowing contents from the blender into the skillet, Grease splashes out of the skillet onto the floor and onto me, searing my face and my hands. I push through, pour more batter into the skillet, and fire lashes out of the skillet into my face. I scream and panic as smoke fills the air. My friend rushes in, 
and closes the door behind me. Outside the kitchen, I hear the sounds of laughter and utensils clinging against dishes. Inside the kitchen, I am sweating and swearing and huffing and complaining. And I think grandma would be proud because I sound just like her. I continue flipping and frying these oil-soaked potato pancakes in this apocalyptic environment until there's a mound of lockers beside me on this giant serving dish. Just like my grandma, I've made enough to feed a small village. Proudly, I leave the kitchen, ready to bring my dish to this table of culture, and I see all the guests have left. I had been struggling in the kitchen for two hours. I put my plate on the table with my jar of applesauce. And like a good chef, I go back into the kitchen to clean up the horrendous mess I've made. And as I'm mopping up the spilled batter and oil from the floor, I begin to miss my grandma. And... I miss her cooking, and I miss the way she loved me through food. And I wish I was more aware and grateful of that love when she was alive. And I go back to the table and sit in front of this mound of latkes that I worked so hard to share. And I begin to see my family laughing, sharing stories and jokes together. I see dishes of enchanting entrees being passed across the table. I see my 10-year-old self reaching for more latkes and applesauce, and I see my mother moving the table from my grasp because I've already had way too many. And I sit in the silence, and I feel sad but I am grateful for the memories because clearly I mattered so much to my grandma. And in that moment, I stopped feeling sad and I began to smile as I realized something magnificent. My friend is asleep on the couch and everyone else has left. I am alone. Finally, all my grandma's latkes are mine. Hi, Joshua. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. First things first. We need to talk about the blender. You used a blender to make latkes, not a grater, not a food processor. Tell us about that. Okay, so my wife makes fun of me and because, because she's convinced that that's not how you make latkes. Although 
that's how I saw them being made. My grandma made everything with a blender. Now, the funny thing about it is, you know, in the story, I talk about how the contents of the blender overflowed. And it did because, you know, if you start putting eggs and onions and potatoes in a blender, then obviously you're creating a lot of liquid. And so I made a huge mess with this blender. Like there, there was, there was batter everywhere, but yeah, blender. I guess I'm the only one that does this though with latkes, right? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> I think we'll get you a box grater for next Hanukkah. But they're supposed to be pancakes, right? Not like hash browns. So I think I'm winning. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. <laughs> um, I do come from a long line of latke makers, but... Never a blender? Never. Okay. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now that we got that out of the way, I'm very curious about the man, the myth, the legend, Joshua Silverstein. Oh, man, what a myth. Who are you? Where are you from? Why did you tell us this story? Okay. So I am from Los Angeles, born and raised. and. I fully immersed myself in the arts because in kindergarten, it's what got me the most attention. So by first grade, I decided I was an artist because girls would look at my drawings and tell me how good they were. And that was all I wanted. It really wasn't until I got older that I stopped comparing myself to what I thought artists should be, you know, whether it be acting or comedy or visual arts or poetry or writing. Because I had up until that point bought into the whole, well, what are you going to do when you grow up conversation, which is you have to pick one thing. And I really didn't know because what I wanted didn't exist. I didn't have any real examples of that. And so I latched on to people that I respected, people like Robin Williams or people like Wayne Brady or people, you know, like Sammy Davis Jr. or Lenny Kravitz or Mel Brooks, people that I really respected as artists and went, I'm going to do that. But, you know, when I got into my 30s, I realized that I wasn't like any of those people. I didn't do what they did. So, now, when people ask me what I do, I say I, I, I do me. And so that's the direction I'm headed. I've come to the belief that maybe I'm the first me to exist. So it takes the pressure off a little bit. That's true. Well, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. So I am extremely curious about what being Jewish in L.A. is like. What does it look like? What does it taste like? Mm. It's a good question. So my mother never converted and my grandparents were atheists. So to me, being Jewish was in my ethos. And so, you know, when I think back to the various dinners that my grandparents had at their house, they would invite the neighborhood. So at my table during Hanukkah, there were people who were black and people who were Japanese and people who were Indian and people who were Hawaiian because it was a neighborhood they were growing up in and that I was also being raised in. And so I looked at all those people as, oh, well, because you're here, you're part of my family. And so I'd go to school and go, well, I'm Christian and Jewish and black and Japanese and Hawaiian. And I didn't know that I wasn't all those things, but I just kind of absorbed what was around me as part of my identity. So now, obviously, 
I, I know that I'm not any of those things except for just being, you know, being black and Jewish. And I know that I'm not religious, so that's not part of my identity. So I feel like being in L.A. means you are the culmination of a melting pot, right? Lots of things happen here that have added to the fabric of what L.A. is. I loved in your story when you talked about how your grandmother adapted her traditional recipes so that you could eat the same dishes as the rest of the family. She didn't make you a separate plate of like the safe latkes. She did not. (laughs) She cooked for the whole family in a way that didn't exclude you. And I feel like that was a remarkable act of love and inclusion. It was. And it really is true. I didn't know that until I got older. You know, I really thought that the recipes that she was using to make all this food was exactly what my uncles and dad grew up eating. And it wasn't until she passed away that I was kind of really missing her food that I that I was like, well, why don't you know how to make this stuff, dad? And he was like, it was made for you. I don't know these ingredients. And I, was, and I thought that was so interesting. And I really wish that I had been aware of that growing up, but it also says something about how she really worked hard to make me feel like I belonged, like I was a regular person. And I think there says something to that about what my foundation as a person is, because I don't step into a room full of black people and think I don't belong here. I don't step into a room full of white people and think I don't belong here because that's not my experience. I mean, I do experience prejudice and bigotry because of who I am and I'm fully aware of it, but she made sure that I didn't grow up feeling uncomfortable because of who I was. And I, and I really think that that's, that's who my grandmother was. Wow. So this idea of, of inclusion, exclusion, being part of multiple communities and identities is something that she really instilled in you or gave you the foundation to accept and, and move through life with a little bit more comfort. Yeah, I I never struggled with the who am I conversation. I never had that cloud of confusion looming over me. I would say from a very early age, I'm black and Jewish and people would go, huh? And I just didn't understand the huh. Because for me, I was like, well, this is just what I am. I also became very aware of early on about how race is a construct and how we as human beings the construct makes us feel comfortable. And so we hold on to it, even though it's divisive and oppressive. And so I I looked to my grandmother as someone who recognized that because of where she came from. And my grandfather too, as the foundation of what it means to be not just accepted, but accepting. I really wish we could come over for a Hanukkah party at your grandparents. They sound so much fun. They were fun, but also very, very stereotypically Jewish. So, you know, they would are, I mean, the table was loud. I mean, everyone in my family had an opinion that may differ from someone else at the table. And so people would fight. And I being an only child, I don't have any siblings, absorb that. So I'm very argumentative. And yeah, it was so interesting to see that, you know, love is something that we assume looks and feels 
the same way. And I look at my grandparents and they, you know, they loved each other, but boy, did they fight. But it was the acceptance of you can have your opinion and it's okay. Why do you think this idea of a family gathering around the table, having these heated arguments, yelling at each other, why do you think that is known or people understand it to be like a typical Jewish thing? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that I I grew up believing and learning from my grandparents is being, you know, because we didn't talk about God often, we did talk about what it does mean to be Jewish. And so for my grandparents, it was the, you know, like caring about the world you live in and the activism. But being a Jew also means asking questions. And so my family asked a lot of questions. And so the arguments weren't necessarily you're wrong, it was, well, what about this? So that, it wasn't so much of a, you know, arms folded resisting. It was really people yelling out different opinions and different ideas. But yeah, but yelling them out, so. Trust me, I've been there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Take us back to this Kwanzaa potluck party. Okay. You're asked to bring a dish that best represents your family. And you without hesitation, said, of course, the I'm bringing the latkes. 100%. Why was there no hesitation about that being the dish? Okay, so my grandmother had passed away about, you know, I want to say like four years prior, or maybe five, right? So she had, she had passed away while I was in high school. And so after she passed, I realized how much I missed her cooking. And I realized how much how she loved me because of the because of how she loved me through food. And the thing that I missed the most was the latkes. And so, you know, the Kwanzaa party happens and I really go to that place of like, yeah, like this dish gave me so much joy. And when you think about food, there's two reasons to eat. There's the nourishment, you know, the fuel, and then there's joy. Right. We get to experience taste because of because of who we are. And so I wanted to bring the same kind of joy that I remembered being a child of my grandmother to this Kwanzaa party potluck. So it wasn't just about me adding my specific culture, which was important. It was how can I give these people an experience that I also had because it's a party it's a celebration. And so that that was my goal to recreate that experience with these friends of mine. And did you have to explain a little bit more about what latkes were and when they're eaten? You know, most people know what a latka is, you know, because, again, this is L.A. and and we are a cultural melting pot. So people weren't confused as to what latkes were. They, they The confusion was, why would you make them at a party? Like, that was the big question that was constantly ta- tossed toward me. I totally stand for that decision because latkes are something you need to eat in the moment. Listen, any potato dish you eat in the moment, everyone knows you heat up French fries, they taste gross. So I thought that my choice was very logical, although, again, it ends in disaster for me. I love the picture that you painted of coming to the Kwanzaa party, bringing the latkes and this intersection of of your two identities. And I know you talked about previously that that was something, you know, you were comfortable with. 
did it take time to get there? Like, were there moments growing up or moments even, you know, as you were older where there was explaining that needed to happen? Um, I remember, you know, getting pushed down in a game that was being played during recess and some kids saying I killed Jesus and me going home being like, I didn't kill anybody, dad, what happened? And, you know, so I experienced that stuff. I experienced kids who looked like me telling me that, I wasn't like them or, you know, stuff that happens when you're a child. You just don't understand how the world works. I took their ignorance as, well, I don't understand why they're confused. But it never dawned on me that the problem was me. And again, I look at my, you know, my my father and my mother, my dad being of Russian Jewish descent and my mother being African-American and us not knowing where our people come from because of slavery. They were very clear about who I was, they would tell me you are black and Jewish. And I, and I also knew that the world would always see me as black. So they prepared me for that. There was this identity that I, that I quickly embraced at a very early age when I began to think about race as, well, this is what, what may happen because I'm a black man moving in America, but I also have this rich culture these two rich cultures, this intersection of cultures. And yeah, I just, there wasn't any weight to that. I just didn't understand why people were so hateful to be kids, too. Like, that was very shocking to me. Wow. That's a beautiful perspective. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. My pleasure. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to right now. You have your own beautiful family, your wife, Cynthia, Mm -hmm. three children. Mm -hmm. What do meals look like in your home today? Holiday meals? Do you... Do you have any Friday night dinners? I'm the cook in the house, <laughs> ironically. And um, they definitely get to experience that intersection of cultures in the household, specifically from, you know, me and my wife. You know, she's Mexican and Jewish, so she makes a lot of the traditional Mexican dishes. She makes her own salsa that the kids love. You know, my son, who's now 13, loves spicy food. At the same time, I'll make barbecue chicken. I'll make um, black-eyed peas that my family loves. My wife loves brisket because she grew up with a Jewish family, which is why she converted before she met me. And so she loves those traditional foods as well, So, which is so cool. We had a friend come over the other day who knows that we're an allergy household, and she made the best gluten dairy-free challah that I've ever had in my life. So Friday night dinners look like, yeah, dishes from various parts of the world, which is super fun. And although our children are very picky eaters and sometimes they won't eat things, we like that they're growing up with not just hot dogs every day, right? Like they're experiencing a a wealth of of foods. To build on that, how do you think your experience growing up with your family affects your parenting and family life today? Ooh, that's a that's a loaded one. So, you know, <laughs> I want to be better than my father and I want my kids to be better than me. I am a father like that as a reaction to how I was raised, not, you know, so almost in spite of it. I grew up with the, my dad specifically, who we were very combative because we're both strong opinionated people. And so there wasn't a lot of room for, you know, I feel like 
my voice in our home growing up with my dad. My parents split when I was 11. And so a lot of the parenting I take from them is what didn't work for me. And so we really try to make sure, you know, from my grandmother too, like she made me feel seen. So it's really important to me, to us, that our children find who they are and feel like they matter. I think the most important thing you can do as a parent is inspire your children to be themselves and to really feel like that is infinite possibilities, right? You know, we give them our values, treat people with respect, be loving, be nice, you know, but we want them to find who they are in the world. And we do our best to prepare them for what that world looks like so they're not surprised by it. But um, we try to give them as much of us as possible so that there's this love of home. And I think if your kids love home, then they become really healthy people in the world. And I think part of what I got from my grandparents was this sense of loving being home and loving to be around family. And so we really try to make our children not just love who, you know, their parents are, but really appreciate what it means to be with family. Amazing. I hope that one day I can uh, come over for dinner yeah, and experience that'd be, that. That'd be great. Is there a dish of yours that you hope someone talks about on stage telling a story like you told oh, wow. in 30 years from now? That's such a wonderful question. Oh, man. So my son, he's 13. I had a birthday on November 29th, and he made my cake, like, from scratch. He made a carrot raisin cake, uh, double deck, and it was delicious. So he's become quite the baker. So he's kind of finding his way in the kitchen. I know he really loves his mother's salsa. We all dig it. And so he's kind of learned how to make that. He really enjoys my barbecue salmon. But I don't know what dish I'd love for them to talk about when they got older, 30 years from now. Now I want to kind of master the latkes. I kind of want to go back to it. I, you know, after the Kwanzaa party, I kind of gave up because I didn't succeed. And so now... I want to check it out and and maybe if everyone's right and maybe I don't use a blender this time and yeah. and that, and if they're delicious I would it would be so cool to have my kids eating the latkes that I my with my grandparents with their family years from now that'd be awesome that's so cool when the recipe's perfected I'll just assume the invite will be in the mail <laughs> it will most certainly Joshua thank you so much for sharing your story It's been a pleasure talking to you. This has been so fun. Thank you for having me. That was Joshua Silverstein. To learn more about him, check out joshuasilverstein.com. And if you'd like to see a super sweet picture of young Joshua with his grandmother, Shirley, go to our Instagram, at Jewish Food Society. We have great news. We're working on season four of Schmaltzy right now. It's going to launch next April, and you don't want to miss it. So be sure to follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get the latest episodes. 
We hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening. From all of us here at Jewish Food Society, enjoy the Festival of Lights and the holiday season, and we'll see you back here for season four in April. Schmaltzy is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Special thanks to the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, and Carter Wogan. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Happy Hanukkah! <laughs>